there's no way in hell that the United States military can afford to pull the plug on F-35 simply from a capacity and or capability perspective, period, dot. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. Across the world, air power is being democratized with small groups and even individuals operating commercial drones in military operations for ubiquitous surveillance and strike. Tens of thousands of drones are operating in Ukraine and Hamas used small unmanned craft to place explosives on unmanned Israeli gun turrets, immobilizing them before launching their deadly terror attacks across the southern part of the country. The U.S. Air Force is moving to make a substantial portion of its future fleet uninhabited as air arms worldwide by the F-35 Lightning II for its fifth-generation capabilities as some develop all-new sixth-generation aircraft. Joining us to discuss all that and more is a man synonymous with air power and already a legendary airman, the dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, retired United States Air Force Lieutenant General Dave Deptula. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is advancing revolutionary engine technologies for this decade and beyond. And the XA100 adaptive engine is tested and ready to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And Bell sponsors the Defense and Aerospace Reports daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. JJ, what's in the news of the week on All Wings Considered? It's a pretty short list this week, Vago, but it starts with the biggest aircraft program in history, of course, the F-35. For a long time, we've been discussing just how many aircraft they would be ready to deliver with the production set at 156 per year. Well, Lockheed came out with its quarterly earnings call, something that normally we would discuss a lot more and probably will on the Sunday business report, but it had some air power news in it, and it is that the F-35 program will only deliver 97 aircraft this calendar year. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to build fewer than 156, but a lot of those jets are going to get parked while they wait for Technical Refresh 3, the hardware system that enables the final Block 4 software that's going to be the production standard. Several countries, including the United States, would rather take delivery of the jets later and have them already finished than take them now and have to upgrade them. We've now seen flying the KF-21, the Korean high-end stealth fighter. It flew at an air show in Seoul. Many interesting comparisons in photos, at least, between that and the F-22. But there's a new sound in the air. And frankly, this is going to have the potential, at least, to bring high-end fifth-generation capabilities to countries that may not have them yet. And the Czech Republic has decided to buy C-390 cargo aircraft from Embraer. This is not part of the worldwide C-130 replacement festival that we do expect to be going on. This is a new capability for the Czech Republic looking to get into some longer range aircraft. And Embraer is now teaming with Saab to market the C-390 to the Swedish Air Force, perhaps a trade-off for the Gripens that are now going to Brazil. Vago? 
I can't imagine there would be a quid pro quo uh, in that case, especially since Brazil is the export launch customer for the uh, latest version, the F model uh, of the Gripen. Amazing win for the KC390 guys. That airplane is absolutely fantastic and wish them all the luck in the world because Mm -hmm. uh, it is a really... The leap ahead capability and extremely thoughtfully produced airplane that many of us, including Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, you know, has said like, hey, the diameter of that transport plane is also very similar to a 767, right? At the time we were expecting Embraer to move up that commercial aircraft food chain before all the insanity among Boeing and Bombardier and all of that happened, where Airbus ended up getting Bombardier in the C-Series and Boeing ended up not getting Embraer. And they've already got commitments from Austria, from Hungary. There's a lot of European interest in this before we even get to the point of replacing C-130s. You're with Teal Group. I mean, what does your projection hold for what the C-130 modernization outlook looks like? Because a lot of people have said that, you know, you replace a C-130 with another C-130, which is why the J model has had such strong legs worldwide. And why the design from 1954 is still selling well worldwide. But the United States Air Force is getting out of the C-130 acquisition business and other air forces around the world who are faced with the decision with older C-130s, do we buy a new J model or do we start looking at something like the C-390 that is jet powered, that has longer legs, have an interesting decision to make. But really, we may be seeing the sunset of the C-130. I want to go to the KF-21, a great achievement, obviously, by Korean industry to do that. A whole bunch of reasons how it is we got there. And one of the reasons it looks like an F-22 is A, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And B, at the end of the day, if you want to make a stealthy jet, it has a tendency of looking that way, right? It does. There are certain principles that go hand in hand with most kinds of stealth. But the specific similarities in inlets, in the underbelly between the KF-21 and the F-22 are fairly remarkable to behold. And let me ask you about the F-35. And we're going to be talking to Dave Deptula about this as well, right? Given how important the F-35 is. There are some voices who are arguing, hey, look, for the cost of technical refresh, three is already very much over budget. I think it's about $16.5 billion, if I recall what you and I discussed some weeks ago. And some folks are saying, look, just cut your losses and go to a next generation airplane. It doesn't look like anybody's really going to do that. But for some, this slow production rate kind of causes a problem, right? I mean, what's the way ahead on this program that is foundationally important to air forces, whether they're with our allies and partners, and will constitute the vast bulk of the U.S. tactical fighter capability? Well, and as we've noted, countries who are ordering the F-35 now don't have a real clue as to when they're actually going to be able to be delivered. We did the math. In order to meet the existing orders, they have to produce at 180 per year. They're producing 156. But now if they're parking most of those jets until TR3, there's going to be a big lump in the python of deliveries. There's all of a sudden going to be, once they get TR3 installed, a lot more deliveries going out. We just don't know when that is. So it's hard to sell a jet if you can't tell the buyer when they're going to be able to get it. And how long do you think it's going to be before that kind of clarity is going to go, right? I mean, it's great that the airplane keeps racking up the successes it has. But to your point, people want a sense on when it is they're going to get their airplanes, aside from a vague possibility of a firm maybe to uh, reprise the MASH joke for all of you who are paying attention. Let's say 
for example, that the issues all get resolved and that the backlog of debts that have been produced but not delivered all get delivered next calendar year. Then they're still running at a production rate that is well below what is needed to catch up with the existing orders, even if they deliver every one of those jets the moment it comes off the production line. So there's still a big question. This issue with TR3 and getting that installed just delays further when the next jet gets delivered. And it becomes a problem that is two years out, three years out, rather than immediately. And if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts on the award-winning Defense and Aerospace Report Network. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company. They clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our Technology Report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. Congratulations to Chris, Chris, and Laura for winning 2023 Defense Media Awards. We're just camelling here. And it is now my honor to welcome a dear friend as well as mentor, Dave Deptula, retired United States Air Force Lieutenant General, who is the Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, one of the world's leading thinkers on air power. Dave, it's an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Vago. It's been uh, too long and great to uh, to be here today. Indeed, we've had a lot of folks from the Mitchell team on, and it's always a pleasure and it's terrific having you on the program. We have now two raging conflicts. One has been going on 21 months that pits a great power against the nation state, less than a third its size, and the other, a terror group that went up against the leading power in the Middle East, which is now responding with devastating consequences. Unmanned systems have been integral to both conflicts. Air power is being democratized, something you and I have been talking about for some time, increasingly made remotely operated capabilities that you championed when you were in uniform, whether for reconnaissance or strike. Both sides are using unmanned drones. Russians are using it to try to overwhelm uh, Ukrainian defenses. Ukraine is using it for long-range precision strike. Manned air power is also important in this context, whether Ukrainians firing the storm shadow weapon or harms, anti-radiation missiles, as well as the Russians that have been using long-range air power to shoot hypersonics into Ukraine. And now we've got Hamas using small drones to take out remotely operated weapon turrets, opening up the border, paragliders and what have you. From your standpoint, over the last 21 or so months, and even in the last 12 days or so, what are the broad lessons that you're seeing emerging that sort of hints at what the future of air power is? Great question. Bago, uh, in your intro there, lead in, you talked a lot about uninhabited aerial vehicles drones. And we've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, this is going to be the future of air power is we're not going to have people in uh, aircraft anymore. Well, first I'd tell you, no, it's not the future. It's now. Militaries around the world have now incorporated drones into their military operations as a fundamental element. So no longer are we kind of a statement of the obvious, no longer where we were 15, 20 years ago when we were trying to introduce these concepts, they are now integral elements of nations' militaries. And they will continue to be so, and we will continue to develop the kinds of capabilities that you see applied in the battle space today. So much so that you're seeing the United States Air Force take a big bet and put a lot of resources 
into what we are now calling collaborative combat aircraft, which are sort of a natural evolution of uninhabited aerial vehicles in that they are going to rely highly on automation and artificial intelligence to go well beyond where we are today with either the smaller quadcopters or up to the more capable MQ-9s. But they won't be flown with hands-on someone, a pilot who is remote to the operation of the vehicle. That's where um, automation and artificial intelligence come into play. So the United States Air Force and other militaries around the world are still determining just what are we going to be able to do with these CCAs and what should they look like? The collaborative combat aircraft was the talk of AFA, the, the Airspace Cyber Conference. There is a debate about you know how much autonomy. Uh, there is also a debate about the potential vulnerability. You know, I mean, there is a good friend of mine. He's a real air power thinker, and he stays awake at night saying, "Hey, you know, what if we bet on this and we bet wrong?" And the the comms links and the navigational links and all of that end up being vulnerable. We're we're screwed. For example, how do you respond to that as we try to map what this future looks like? Again, it is a legitimate concern, but it's also one that I sense a little bit of you know, well, that's not the way we've done business in the past. <laughs> and it's not. And so as soon as you start mentioning links, I'm going, well, wait a second. This is the whole point of using autonomy and artificial intelligence so that you don't have to rely on links for the fundamental operation of the aircraft. Now, yes, if you want to share information, which is integral to the advantage of having collaborative combat aircraft operate in conjunction with inhabited aircraft, you're going to have to share information somehow, but it may not be done with traditional radio frequency data links. And here you need to start thinking about optical communications, laser communications, operating in a variety of disparate routes, not communicating direct with the aircraft, but communicating up to space and having a vehicle in space then translate that information. And so there are a variety of different solutions and all of these need to play into how CCAs are developed. The fresh conflict in the world between Israel and Hamas, where you've got a nation state against a terror group that's hiding itself in civilians. We saw ISIS do this. It affected the pace of air operations because we try to minimize civilian casualties where terror groups embrace civilian casualties and make that part of the narrative. You recently went on the record saying that human shields shouldn't deter or restrict Israel's use of air power. Tell us more about that assertion and how precision attack can help neutralize the effects of human shields, some of whom in this case will be hostages. Yeah, no, JJ, it's an excellent question. Unfortunately, it's one that's pretty complex once you start jumping into it. What you see happening in the unfolding conflict between Hamas and really Iran and potentially Hezbollah is they're engaging what some have called lawfare or the misuse of international law as a substitute for traditional military means. Another way of saying that is that this is an information war. They're creating perceptions or trying to create perceptions of Israel being just as culpable as they are in killing civilians. So much so 
that they have no qualms about putting Palestinians in harm's way and have even been observed blowing up Palestinians, driving south out of Gaza City, and then blaming Israel as the source of the killing. Part of the challenge here is that there's a recent study that was put out by MIT that it takes a truth about six times as long as falsehood to reach thousands of people, and that disinformation was 70% more likely to be shared on social media than the truth. Without going too much into information warfare, let's go back to your point on human shields and how air power, precision air power, can be used to minimize the potential of civilian casualties. First, the use of human shields and the misuse of protected sites like mosques and hospitals or war crimes. Everyone knows that, but Hamas, Iran, and the radical Islamic extremists don't care. But it's important to understand that even if Hamas uses human shields, and while Israel's still bound by the principle of proportionality, and they have to take all feasible precautions to minimize harms to civilians, that does not mean that they cannot strike legitimate military targets because of the presence of those human shields. What they have to make sure is that the potential damage to civilians is not excessive in relationship to the direct military advantage anticipated. So what they have to do is they have to look at and mitigate the potential of civilian loss of life before they can attack a military objective. And here is where precise application of air power comes into play, because that helps them accomplish that goal. At the same time, and the Israelis are, have a long history of warning, warning the civilians, unfortunately the adversaries get warned in advance too, that they're gonna attack a particular building. They'll drop leaflets. They'll tell them that a certain location is gonna be under attack. They'll drop small charges, non-lethal on top of buildings to warn them that they're about to come under attack. So those are all part of the actions that are taken to mitigate the potential of civilian loss of life. But air power is perhaps the most precise means of force application in this unfortunate conflict that we see unfolding. Following on your discussion of information warfare, the United States has an enormous advantage in some ways in information but you used to run intelligence for the Air Force. How far can or should intelligence organizations go in revealing what they can see in order to refute false claims? Yeah, well, it's a wonderful question. And first, it's not the intelligence organization that makes that decision. It is, in the case of the United States, the Department of Defense and the Director of National Intelligence. And then you go all the way up to the White House. And there are times, I'm going to give you a perfect case in point that just happened. First, we saw the unfortunate explosion that occurred in the parking lot of this hospital in Gaza. Well, it became evident right away to anyone who's an expert in understanding the lethality and the footprint of high explosive weapons that this was not from a bomb that the Israelis uh, might use a precision weapon it was more likely from an errant missile that lost its way and exploded and fell on this parking lot, causing a fire. But 
it didn't matter because this is where the adversary is using mis disinformation, malign mis disinformation to attempt to garner listeners to their cause. Now, what the Israeli government decided to do, because the reaction around the world was so negative and it had hopped on to the Hamas narrative, they decided, okay, we're going to prove it. And there's no evidence of a 500 pound bomb here because there's no crater. Um, there's just a fire in a parking lot. That was the other part of the disinformation, by the way. The hospital wasn't hit, the parking lot was. And by the way, where's the 500 civilian casualties number come from? You know, while the numbers aren't out yet from the damage that is actually witnessed, there's no way you'd have 500 casualties. But let's put that aside. The Israeli government decided to release a signals intercept conversation between two Hamas operatives over the phone. I watched and listened to the conversation on national news TV program last night. And they're having the discussion in terms of talking about well, what happened. Um, was it one of ours? And the answer on the other side was, yes, it was. We launched it from the cemetery behind the hospital. And the other guy said, there's a cemetery next to the hospital. And he goes, yeah. And so they go through this whole conversation and you can see right clearly they're admitting that they were the ones that launched the rockets. It misfired and landed in the hospital. So back to your original question, it depends. It depends upon the significance of what's occurring in this case, in the hearts and minds of people around the globe. It's back to the proportionality question applied in a different way. Is it worth releasing some indication of what our signals intelligence capabilities are to actually get out the message and correct this disinformation narrative to let people know that, no, this was not the result of an Israeli attack. It was the result of a Hamas or a uh, Palestinian Jihad rocket gone awry. It was not intentional, I don't believe, but it was an accident and it was occurred because of the launch of Palestinian uh, Jihad. We have to remember that just because a new war has broken out, the old ones haven't gone away. At the start of the Ukraine war, you called for F-16s to be transferred to Ukraine saying even if the decision was made quickly, it would take nearly a year to train the crews. You've been borne out as right on that. What are the other air capabilities that Ukraine in particular needs as the administration puts together a new aid package that's probably going to include Israel aid and Taiwan aid as well? Are there common capabilities they can all benefit from in air power? Or what are the important things to make sure are in there? The thing they need to get the Ukrainians are trained up in F-16s and the F-16s and the maintenance packages to be able to enhance their air force as rapidly as possible. With respect to other elements, that's the number one objective right now, because what Ukraine needs is a game changer that can transform the calculus of the fight, and that game changer is air power. And the most versatile aircraft that can do that as the F-16 because it can conduct air defense, it can conduct surface attack, it can conduct suppression of enemy air defenses, and so on and so forth. So we need to turn up the speed at which we train those pilots and get those aircraft in the hands of the Ukrainians. 
with respect to air power assistance to Israel, that's mainly going to come in the context of munitions and munitions replacements for their air defense systems like Iron Dome, um, which rightfully is part of the Air Force. If we shift to China and Taiwan, Taiwan's military needs to take a lesson from what's going on in working better to incorporate all elements of their defense architecture into a much more integrated architecture and build the capabilities to the point that they can continue to deter the mainland Chinese. And that's becoming more and more challenging as the PRC continues to accelerate and build its uh, air and space forces. Of note that I haven't heard anybody talk about, uh, it just recently came out that the PLA has made a decision to move um, most of the aircraft and air systems in the PLA Navy into the PLA Air Force. And it's something, JJ and uh, Vago, that you might do a little research on, and we'll do a complete separate program on this. Perhaps they're seeing the light that having all the aircraft integrated under a service that understands the true value of the exploitation of air and space may, in fact, be the way to go. And you say this, just this two uh, aircraft carrier battle groups will be convening in the eastern Mediterranean off the Israeli coast. They were supposed to do combined operations anyway. So, you know, they weren't deployed specifically for this purpose, but right allows the United States and allows the Navy to make the case, hey, look, carrier and naval air power is a flexible tool that can help increase deterrence, right? This is along the lines of, you wanted to write a paper some years ago, as I recall, uh, you know, how airmen would use aircraft carriers. Yeah, look, aircraft carriers are fine as carriers of aircraft. And if we treat them as what they are, and that's floating air bases, that doesn't mean that the aircraft on board have to be part of the Navy. And look, I'm under no illusions. This is going to happen because service cultures are so strong. And oh, by the way, if you really wanted to use those aircraft in the most efficient way possible, you'd get them off the aircraft carriers, put them on a land base because you can generate more sorties from a land base than you can from a sea base. That's unarguable. So we're not going to paint the carriers air superiority blue instead of haze gray? No, I'd keep the carriers under the command and control of the United States Navy, but I'd ship the aircraft to the Air Force. Dave, to say the very least, that is the start of a series of programs that we can have to try to delve into that. Unfortunately, our time is short. And as you know, you and anybody from the Mitchell team are welcome uh, here anytime to have that and any other conversation. But it would be good to convene actually a a discussion on what some innovative concepts for the future are. I want to bring you to lessons our adversaries are learning. You know, whether it's Hamas, Russia, China, or anybody else, adversaries can be very adaptive. Western air power leaders have told me they're amazed, for example, at Russia's ability to generate large-scale strikes every other day involving long-range air power, launching precision missiles, uh, as well as its unmanned craft like the Shahed. China has been developing capabilities as well, and the Chinese military and security power report was just released today on Thursday. What are the adversary capabilities that we need to be focused on? Because we have a tendency of sort of talking about what it is we want to do, and sometimes what it is we want to do, people observe, there is a delta between what we're intending and actually what our adversaries are doing, and until we get surprised by it sometimes. 
what are the capabilities that they're developing that, that we need to focus on and counter? Well, first, what I'd tell you, Vago, it's not about capabilities. In Now, I'm speaking about what you just brought up. You said some people are amazed that the Russians can continue to lob missiles and weapons off of aircraft. And they're looking at the Chinese and they're looking at the capacity that they have. This is a capacity issue, okay? Hey, you want to talk about lessons? Here's the lesson. The size and the capacity and the inventory of munitions that our adversaries have and that we don't. I've said it before and I'll say it again and I'll keep saying it until someone finally wakes up and realizes that this has to change. But the United States Air Force is the oldest, the smallest, and the least ready in its entire history. Now let that sink in for a minute, okay? The world is on fire which means that our United States Air Force Airmen are gonna be called to fly into harm's way, but they have not been provided what it will take to fight and win. And in fact, the current plans on the books are to reduce the size of the United States Air Force by another thousand aircraft that's net over the next five years. So, that's the lesson we need to be taking away, all right? If we want to get serious about our ability to deter our uh, adversaries and then win, if in fact we get in a situation where we have to fight against them, we have to get whole again. We have to increase our capacity. We have to have sufficient munitions, not to last just a week, but to last, in fact, if necessary, much, much longer than that. Let me just ask a, a follow-up then on that. This summer, you guys uh, did a study about what would, would be required, right? You guys looked at what recapitalization of the combat air forces would look like. You know, we're the president's about to ask for $100 billion in additional money to help our allies and partners. Obviously, we are the arsenal of democracies. And, you know, Secretary Kendall has been pretty effective at clawing money back to be able to reinvest. How much money are we talking about on an annualized basis to give us the combat air forces we need, as well as the munitions capabilities we need? Approximately 15 to $20 billion a year. Okay, now some people might say, oh my gosh, that's a lot of money. Let me remind your audience that in the 20 years post 9-11, the United States Army received $66 billion a year more than the Air Force, okay? I don't besmirch them that money. They were the preponderance of forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. But guess what, folks? We're no longer in Iraq or Afghanistan. And one of the reasons that the Air Force is the oldest and the smallest and the least ready in its history is because of that diversion of money out of the Air Force accounts into the Army. And a matter of fact, if you take out pass-through which is the money's billions, 44 billion a year this year, uh, that are identified as part of the Air Force budget, but not one cent goes to the United States Air Force. What you find out is the United States Air Force has been funded less than the Army and the Navy for 31 years in a row, okay? So that lack of investment in our Air Force has brought it to the state that it's in now, it is in a obvious 
spiral and continues to decline, that has to be corrected or uh, the United States Air Force is not going to be able to succeed in the next fight. And this isn't just about the Air Force because there's no joint force operation that can be conducted without some element of the Department of the Air Force being involved. So this affects our entire Department of Defense. Let's look to the future. In a story we broke, the NGAD program, Next Generation Air Dominance, is down to two contenders. From your view as a practitioner and student of air power, what should the determining characteristics be when selecting what's likely to be the Air Force's high-end fighter for the rest of the century? You know, again, we could talk about that for a long, long time, but speed, range, payload, you know, all the ones that you're very well familiar with, uh, JJ, and low observability are all key attributes, as well as, and here's one that historically has not been paid much attention to because particularly in a competition like this, folks are looking to come up with the lowest cost platform. And, you know, one of my criticisms of the Department of the Defense over the last 30 years is they focused on cost to the exclusion of effectiveness. And so we, we need to get effectiveness back into the equation and start doing evaluations on the basis of cost per effect, not unit cost. And so that would be the biggest point that I'd like to make. And I would hope that the Department of Defense takes into consideration in its selection. And that's not to select the one that is the cheapest per unit, but the one that promises the most capability per investment dollar. Mm -hmm. Just following up on that real quick, when we went into the Vietnam War, the idea was that missiles had gotten so good, we didn't need maneuverability. We didn't have to be able to dogfight. We learned a lesson there that that wasn't true. Have we come far enough that maneuverability is not a prime concern for a fighter like Enga? You know, it's funny. You remind me of a discussion I had back in 1988, 89, when I was in the Pentagon for the second time. And I was a major at the time, and I was arguing with my good friend, Jack Catton, who was a, a major too. And we were talking about attributes in the what later became the F-22. But I was arguing against putting a gun in the aircraft. And part of my argument was that weight in space would be much better allocated to fuel to increase the range than it would be a gun. And people were arguing for the gun for the same reason that you just articulated. It's like, hey, we're going to get in a turning fight. Well, let me give you a little statistic. The F-15C, the world's greatest air-to-air -air fighter until the F-22, has a record of 104 aerial kills. Only one was with a gun, okay? So you could go back 20 years and that, that's when the record was, was established. So we're not talking about something new. I do believe that your supposition is accurate. I'm, I'm not saying that, that all my air-to-air -air buddies are going to go apeshit, um, but <laughs> I'm not saying that maneuverability should not be a consideration, but it shouldn't be the number one consideration, okay? And, and your Desert Storm colleague, Chuck Horner, said he would cashier any pilot who came back with a gun kill on his camera because you're giving the other guy an even shot. Well, yeah. I mean, that goes without saying. You know, the counter argument is you, you can't bet 100% that you're not going to end up in a turning fight. Okay, fine. But guess what? I'm willing to take those odds and give the aviators of the future 
more payload, more range, more speed, and more low observability. Is the better way to think about NGAD as a really forward battle manager more than anything else, more than you know anything that's dogfighting? I mean, mirroring a little bit the J-20, that it can be stealthy, have long range, be on station, and extend your reach forward to control, right, whether it's four or five, ten CCAs each to affect that forward battle? I mean, is that a better way of thinking about it? I don't say it's a better way. I think it is a way. And, you know, over time, people are coming to realize what I've been saying for 20 years with respect to F-22 and F-35 is they're not Fs. They're F-B-E-A-R-C-E-W-A-W-C-S 22s and 35s. And we'll value them along with NGAD to penetrate contested airspace, collect information, share it with the rest of the force to be able to increase situational awareness. So yes, and part of the role, it's already been demonstrated. Part of, once the F-22 got uh, incorporated into Operation Inherent Resolve operations in Syria, we didn't launch any air operations into Syria without having an F-22 there. Not for force protection, but for information advantage. Right. so that they could inform the rest of the force what was going on. And so short answer to your question after that lengthy reply is yes, it is going to be a battle management aircraft in addition to all the other capabilities that it can provide. And then, of course, it gets integrated with B-21 smart tanker, right? I mean, so the future of this is is really a fully integrated force where you, you can deliver a broader range of effects. Let me just uh, take you to F-35 very briefly. You know, we talked about 97 are going to be delivered. That is a slow rate. The technical refresh three is important. It's behind schedule. There are a lot of questions about the engine in, in terms of being able to get to that cooling and power in the future. Air Force is betting on the engine upgrade, but, you know, still holding out hope that if they can do AETP, they will. All of these delays, Dave, are prompting some, even thoughtful folks, to say, look, maybe we ought to pull the plug on the F-35 and actually put our beans into the next generation of capability. Where, where do you fall on that, given the F-35 is supposed to be the aircraft to fill out our force structure for the combat air forces for the next couple of decades? There's no way in hell that the United States military can afford to pull the plug on F-35 simply from a capacity and or capability perspective, period, dot. All right. Yes, the program has challenges. They will be addressed and they'll be ameliorated. But it's absolutely foolish and nonsensical to even contemplate terminating F-35. And what are you going to move on to? What are you then going to recapitalize the oldest and smallest and least ready Air Force with? Well, I think that just about says it. Dave, thanks so very much for joining us. It's an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Each one of these could have been a longer program, and we appreciate you being so generous with your time. Thanks so very much. You bet. My pleasure, Vago and JJ. Keep up the great work. Thanks for listening to the Air Power Podcast, and be sure to tell your friends. A special thanks to GE Aerospace for their generous support. We'll be back next week.